I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews as we continue on in our series in Hebrews chapter 12. We've been looking at the subject matter, Christ is better. Some of them were thinking about going back to the temple and the Old Testament sacrifices and the temple worship and liturgy. And he's been telling them they can't go back. Christ is better. He's better than Moses, better than the law, better than the Levitical priesthood, better than anything. And so he's continuing in that that same theme this morning. And we're going to look at verses 12 to 17 of chapter 12 and talk about ongoing evidence of genuine faith. Ongoing evidence of genuine faith. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? Verse 12, he says, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Lord, this is your word. Your inspired word to your people. I pray, God, that you would open our eyes and open our ears. As Jesus said to the churches in Revelation, that he who has ears to hear, let him hear. God, may we hear and may we respond with obedience. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the context of these verses... What we have here that he is addressing is a group of people who are tired. Am I speaking to anybody here this morning who is tired? Maybe you're tired of vacation. You need a vacation from a vacation. You ever been there? You ever experienced something like that? All of the things that go on in our lives, week in and week out, all the responsibilities with family, with work, with church, any other activities that we're involved in, oftentimes we are tired and exhausted. But folks, what I want you to see is he's writing to a group of people here who are tired and exhausted for an entirely different reason. They're tired and exhausted because they are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. They are Jews who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. 
And because they've come to faith in Jesus Christ, their countrymen have turned against them. In fact, we know from some documents at the time that, that for a Jew to become a Christian, sometimes their families disowned them. Sometimes they lost their jobs, their source of income. They were hated and despised because they've come to faith in Jesus Christ. And they've been facing the onslaught of all of this opposition and they are tired and they are weary. And some of them are entertaining the fact that maybe we just need to go back to the temple and spare ourselves Some of this hardship that we're going through. And so here in chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews has been using the analogy of a runner in a race. He began the chapter by talking about this great cloud of witnesses that we are surrounded by. And he has told us that we need to lay aside the sin and any hindrance that would slow us down. Well, he picks up in verse 12 using that same analogy of a race. And the image in verse 12 is that the runner has hit a wall. And because he's hit that wall in the race, his arms are drooping, his hands are drooping, his energy is almost depleted, it's gone. And his legs are wobbly and unsteady. And so his admonition to them is not simply to sit down and take it easy for a while. Rather, he is saying to them, stay in the race. Strengthen yourself for the race. The race is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's not easy. Nobody ever told you the Christian life was going to be easy. If they did, you found that out to be a lie. It's not easy. So you need to hang in there. Don't give up. Glorify the Lord Jesus with your life, whatever it takes. Now he's also spoken to them about the fact that some of the opposition that they are facing is actually from the Lord. Now be careful here. We know that God is not the author of sin. However, God may allow hardship in our lives God may allow you to go through something bad something evil without God being the source of that and that's what he's done with them he's allowed this persecution for a reason he's using this as discipline in their Christian walk to strengthen them you know what that's what trials do they build character they build fortitude they build endurance And so in the long run, they are intended for our good, that we'll be stronger. I want you to listen to the testimony I I found this week of an actual account of Navy SEAL training. And what that training is intended to do in a recruit's life, and then I'll make application to us. The account goes this way. They came up to this ensign and poured a glass of ice water down his back and threw another in his face. The ensign who had fallen asleep in the chow hall after five sleepless nights opened his eyes for a second just long enough to utter the words. Thank you, sir. 
A moment later, his eyes rolled upward and then closed. His head went down again. He didn't touch his meal. He was far too exhausted to eat. It's called Hell Week. Hell Week is part of the Navy's basic underwater demolition school where sailors are turned into SEALs, sea, air, and land commandos. By undergoing a grueling regimen of sleepless days and nights, sensory overload and physical testing, these men are transformed into some of the toughest human beings on planet Earth. This process begins at the Coronado Naval Base in San Diego, California. The class begins in October with a 300-yard swim and the physical regimen becomes increasingly difficult as it builds to the ultimate challenge known again as Hell Week. This final period of physical and mental torture begins on a Sunday night. Lights flash on as the recruits are awakened by an instructor. Next to one ear, a machine gun with blanks is fired. A jet from a garden hose is digging into the other ear. An instructor shouts, we have a mission to perform this evening. I want you to listen to every detail very carefully that I have for you. The mission turns out to be exercising and lying wet and naked on cold steel plates installed on a nearby pier. On Monday, the six-man teams are ordered to run races with a 250-pound Zodiac rubber assault boat on their heads. Tuesday, with less than an hour's sleep the night before, they have to row these same Zodiac boats into Mexican waters and back a trip of 18 miles. Because of sleep deprivation, many of the trainees confess to drifting in and out of consciousness throughout the trip. Back at the base, most students learn to sleep while eating. On Wednesday, the men continue the races with boats bouncing on their heads, their combat boots uh, sinking into the soft sand. That evening, they run again. At midnight, they are ordered to lie naked in the cold, pounding surf. Remember, it's October. Every 10 minutes during the night, they are made to stand up so that their bodies will get the full effect of the cold, icy wind. After the surf torture, the chance to disenroll awaits each student. All he has to do is ring a certain bell three times and say the words, I quit. And he will be removed from the program. By Thursday, everyone is hallucinating. By Friday afternoon, the week is over and the new seals are lined up to be checked by a medical doctor. By pushing these men to the very brink of insanity and exhaustion during times of peace, the Navy is giving them the best possible chance for survival should war break out and they find themselves either captive or in some other desperate situation. 
Folks, the writer of Hebrews is telling them that God, through the presence of trials and hardships, through the presence of even persecution, is stretching them. He's making them stronger. He's making them better prepared for the spiritual warfare that we are all going to encounter. But in these verses today, he's also reminding them that that not only do they need to hang in there because of what God is developing in them, but they also need to be very mindful of the two relationships that a believer always has to give attention to. We have to give attention first and foremost to the vertical, our relationship with God. We have to always be maturing and growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, being equipped for any active ministry that He may lead you into. And secondly, we have to be mindful of the horizontal, our relationship with others. I want you to see how he develops these thoughts. I hope you'll take notes this morning. And first of all, point number one, I want you to see that we are to strive for peace and holiness. We are to strive for peace and holiness. Look with me again at verse 14. He says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Here we have the horizontal and the vertical both being addressed in just one verse. Folks, the Christian life is not either or. It's both and. The person on the one hand who says, I don't care one bit about other people. Just so long as I'm growing in my relationship with Jesus Christ. As long as I'm in the word and in prayer and I'm doing what I need to be doing spiritually, I could care less about other people. That's not right. Here was the Lord Jesus, perfect in all of his ways, certainly perfect in that vertical, in that relationship with his heavenly Father. And yet, Jesus Christ had time for people and he reached out and he ministered to people because he cared for them. In fact, in Matthew 9, it says that he saw the masses and his heart was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He gave attention to both the vertical and the horizontal. Here's somebody on the other hand that says, I don't have time to grow spiritually. I'm not going to read the word. I'm not going to be in prayer. I'm not going to be maturing in my faith. I don't have time for stuff like that. I'm a doer. Give me something to do. I'll visit somebody. I'll make a hospital call. I'll take somebody some groceries. Whatever you need me to do, I'll do. I'm a doer. But I'm not going to grow in my faith. That's off balance also. Both sides are wrong. We're to work on the vertical. We're to grow. We're to grow in maturity. We're to grow in holiness. But we're also to minister to people and strive as much as is possible with us to be right with them. You know, the Bible gives ample instructions on both. I want you to think about that situation in Matthew 22. Jesus had just silenced the Sadducees. Now the Pharisees determine it's their turn to try to trick him. They're going to ask him a question. 
And they're going to trip him up on the law of Moses because they're looking for some accusation they can make against him. And so one of them steps forward and says, uh, good teacher or master, what's the greatest commandment of all? And remember what Jesus said in Matthew 22? You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your body, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's the greatest commandment of all. He went on to say, you know, if you do that, all of those vertical commands about your relationship with God, if you're loving God with all your heart, mind, and body, and soul, and strength, every other command that has to do with the vertical is going to be taken care of. And he said the second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two great commandments he said on which hang all the law and the prophets. If you're loving your neighbor as yourself, then all the other commandments in the law that have to do with the horizontal relationship with your neighbor, you're going to be taking care of those too. Again, Jesus addressed both. He emphasized the need for both. It's not either or, it's both and. And that's exactly what we see here in Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus pointed out on one occasion that you cannot be right with God if there's unforgiveness in your heart towards somebody. We have to forgive those who need our forgiveness because we stand forgiven before God. If we can't forgive, then that's evidence that we've never experienced forgiveness. Somebody who's not experienced grace cannot turn around and extend grace. It's foreign to them. So again, what's he say here? Look at verse 14. I hope you'll underline this verse. What's he say? Strive. Circle that word or highlight it. Whatever you do in your Bible to call attention to something. Strive for peace with everyone. And for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He's telling them this is not going to be easy. It's not a passive activity. It's not something that is just going to happen by nature or by chance. You have to strive for it. You have to strive for peace with folk and you have to strive for holiness. It takes effort. It's not always easy. Folks, if it were easy to be at peace with everyone, there would not even be commands given that we need to obey that because we'd do it naturally anyway. It's not always easy. Strive for peace. Bear with me for a moment because in the Bible, peace is used in three ways. And here he's talking about the third way. But I want you to see the way it builds in the Bible. First of all, in the scripture, peace is emphasized in terms of of having peace with God. You and I don't come into this world in our natural state through the first birth, the physical birth, being at peace with God. Ephesians 2 is very clear about that. We are at Odds. We're at enmity with God. We are enemies of, of God. We're under His wrath. We're dead in trespasses and sins. That's our natural state. We are not at peace with God. We're not reconciled to Him. 
And that's the situation all of us have been in. You're either in that state right now or you've been in that state in the past of not being at peace with God. But we know how that peace occurs. Christ died on the cross for your sin. He bore your sin and your guilt and gave you his righteousness. That you might be justified in the sight of God and reconciled to him that you might be at peace with him. Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we have peace with God? By being justified by faith in Christ. That means when we talk about peace, we also have to talk about justification. How's one justified? Through faith in Christ. When you're justified, you enter into this state of being at peace with God. You're regenerated. You're born again. Somebody asked a famous preacher on one occasion, why are you always saying to your people, you must be born again? He said, because you must be born again. You must be justified if you want to have peace with God. The new birth is the process through which God takes a lost sinner, moves upon the heart of that person, convicting them of their sin, drawing them to faith in Jesus. They turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. And in that moment, they're justified. It's the process of regeneration where God makes you new from the inside out and immediately you are in a state of peace with God. You can lay your head on your pillow tonight and knowing if you were to leave this world, you would wake up in the arms of Jesus. You're at peace with God. There's therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Then those who have peace with God can enjoy the peace of God. That's the second way peace is used. God is at peace. God's not worried. God's not anxious. He's not fretful over anything. God is at peace and he's described in the Bible as the God of peace. And so through the power of God's spirit you can enjoy the peace of God. Having peace with God you can have the peace of God. And then those who have peace with God and also enjoy the peace of God are to turn around and extend that peace to others. That's this aspect that he's talking about here. Folks, Christians are to be agents of peace and reconciliation in this world. We're to be salt and light. We're to be witnesses, we're to be ambassadors for Christ. But in so doing, we are agents of peace and reconciliation. It's an angry world. It's a divided world. And Christians, whatever environment we find ourselves in, we're to make a difference. I want to give you an example of this out of the Bible. 
about something that affects many people. Now, this, this is not a sermon on marriage, but I want to give you an illustration about what Paul says about marriage and how this applies to being agents of peace. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about the case where there's two people and they were, they were both unbelievers. They got married. They weren't unequally yoked because they were both unbelievers. But in the course of time, one becomes a believer. And so they wrote Paul a series of questions that he's answering in the Corinthian correspondent. And they were like, what are we to do now? Now that I'm a Christian and my spouse is not, do I divorce my spouse and go out and find a believing spouse? Paul said, absolutely not. You're to stay in that marriage. As far as it depends on you, you're to be an agent of reconciliation. To have a sanctifying effect on your home. He went on to say now if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. You're not bound in that case. And then he closes out that admonition by saying because God has called us to peace. You see what he's saying there and what I'm trying to get across Christians, wherever we are found, whatever situation that we're in, the home, work, school, church, we are to be agents of peace. Agents of reconciliation. We're not to stir up strife. We're not to gossip or slander. We are to spread peace. Now, folks, we're engaged in a battle. We're in a a spiritual warfare. We're not fighting against flesh and blood, Paul says, but against principalities and powers in high places. And we battle every day against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are at war. But as far as our relationships with one another, we're to be agents of peace where possible. He says here, the writer of Hebrews says here that we are To strive for peace. We're to work hard at it. Not only are we to strive for peace, but he goes on to say we're also to strive for holiness. That takes purpose and intent too. So he turns from talking about the horizontal relationship of peace to now talking about the vertical, the horizontal. And he gives the same admonition, strive. The Bible calls God's people to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, to grow in holiness. In 1 Peter 1, the Bible says, Be holy. God is addressing His people here. He's saying, Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. What Peter is doing is he's giving a quote out of the book of Leviticus. I dare say you've probably not studied the book of Leviticus lately. Right? Probably haven't. Study it sometime. Look at all the different sacrifices, the detailed instruction that's given there in in Leviticus. You read some of that and you think, why, why is God giving such detail and all the instructions about how everything's to be done and worship, everything and sacrifices? Why is there so much detail given? You want to know why? Because God is a holy God. Any old thing will not do. God sets the standard for his people. 
Why? Because he's a holy God. Isaiah in the temple that day, he saw the Lord high and exalted on his throne and the seraphim flying around the throne. And remember what what the seraphim were saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, the Bible gives a lot of different attributes of God. We think of the love of God, the mercy of God, the justice of God. But the primary way that God is defined in both the Old and New Testament is that he is a holy God. Sin will not dwell in his presence. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying here, when it comes to the vertical, your relationship with God, you have to strive for holiness. And what's that going to mean? It's going to mean that you've got to go to war against sin. It's all-out warfare. What sin are you particularly susceptible to? You've got to go to war. You've got to have a battle plan against sin in your life. You've you've got to take it on in the power of God, in the power of His Word, the power of the Holy Spirit. You've You've got to take that on. You've got to meet it head on. You've got to overcome that through the blood of the Lamb. You've got to go to war. Against sin. What, what sin in your life? Is the Lord bringing something to attention in your life? This week, may he bring something to attention in your life? You need a battle plan so you can go to war against sin in your life. Why? Because God is a holy God. If you're going to commune with God and fellowship with God and grow close to God, you and I have got to deal with sin and transgression in our lives. Again, why? Because he's a holy God. Any old thing will not do. What about complacency in your heart? Apathy and complacency. You got a battle plan against that. How are you going to grow in holiness? How are you going to grow? The Lord Jesus told the church at Ephesus, you have fallen out of love with me. You've taken a great fall. And he gave them a battle plan of what they were to do to return to him. Why? Because he's a holy God. Not only sin in your life, but apathy in your life, complacency in your life. What are you going to do to go in warfare against those things in your life? With the motive being because God's a holy God. Look at the motivation that he gives here. He says here, without which. He's talking about holiness. Look what he says. Without which no one will see the Lord. Do you want to see the Lord? You want to be with him? Sure you do then you have to address this issue of striving for holiness. Now, on the one level, we know that we are only made holy through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 talks about this exchange that the Lord makes with us. He takes my sin and your sin on himself and he gives us his righteousness. He takes my sin, gives me his righteousness. That's a pretty good exchange, isn't it? 
So apart from Christ, a person is not holy. Folks, those in the world who are not Christians are not holy before God. You say, preacher, that sounds awfully exclusive. It is exclusive, but it's what the Bible teaches. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. We're made holy only through Christ. Let me call that positional holiness to help you make a a distinction. Positional holiness where He makes you holy through the righteousness of Christ. Because of this, the New Testament teaches us that everybody who comes to faith in Jesus Christ and is born again is to walk in the light and turn away from sin and turn towards holiness. That's practical holiness. We are to be concerned about practical holiness in our lives because of who we are in Christ through positional holiness. In fact, in 1 John chapter 1, John writes, he says, God is light, the one who knows him, says that he knows him, must walk in light. He said, if somebody confesses with their lips, I know him, and then they turn around and walk in darkness as a way of life, John says, they lie and don't practice the truth. In other words... Practical holiness in your life gives evidence of positional holiness. You with me? One of the evidences of the genuineness of the new birth is your desire to be holy and your desire to deal with sin. Practical holiness points to positional holiness. Holiness. So again, his first admonition to us here is what? Strive to be at peace with everyone and strive to be holy without which no one will see the Lord. Secondly, if you're taking notes, we are to heed the warning. We are to heed the warning. Look at what he picks up saying in verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Who is is the one that he mentions here who falls short of the grace of God? Who's that person? He is speaking of the person who professes Jesus Christ with his or her lips. But again, there's no evidence. They don't persevere in trials. They don't strive for peace. They don't strive for holiness. They say they're a Christian with their lips, but their life tells a different story. It's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 7 when he said, not everybody who comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, will enter into heaven. Not everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. 
Folks, in the Bible, the evidence that we're born again is that we persevere. You see, it's not that you had it and lost it. There are some Christian groups that believe that. We do not believe that. That you have it and then lose it. If you fall short of the grace of God that he's mentioning here in verse 15, why is that the case? That's the case because you never had it. So when he talks here about failing, he's speaking of the one who does not strive for peace. They don't strive for holiness, in which case the person is giving evidence that they were never truly converted to begin with. Now folks, I want to confess something here, okay? He is writing as a pastor to them. Chapter 13, as he closes the letter... And he says, I've given you this word of exhortation, though it's brief. Imagine that. In his sermon, he preached the entire book of Hebrews to him and said, it's brief. (laughs) It's brief. It's a word of exhortation. He was probably delivered first as a sermon. And he's a pastor. He cares about his flock. And one of the things that I confess, it's, it's so difficult to do, and we're going to find that here. And I pray, please pray that I strike the right balance. Okay? Because we're, we're here on this topic. There is such a thing as illegitimate doubt. I never want to stir up illegitimate doubt. Somebody said we are to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That's true, isn't it? I never want to stir up doubt where that doesn't belong. At the same time, there are certain people that something needs to be stirred up. It's like Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves to make sure you are really in the faith. Think of that that Corinthian bunch and the way they were living. You want to talk about an interesting group. And Paul told them at the closest chapter 2, the second letter rather, he said you better examine yourselves to make sure you are really in the faith. So here's that balance. You never want to stir up illegitimate doubt where it doesn't belong. And that's the danger. You read a text like this, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. And there are born again people, they they start wrestling things, start doubting things. And you want to say, no, I, I didn't mean that with you. But there's others in the flock. They give confession that Jesus Christ is their Lord. But if you were to look at their lives... There is no evidence whatsoever that they know Christ. They come to church on Sunday and live like the devil Monday through Saturday. And that group needs to be shaken. And that's what he's trying to do with them. 
And he gives the two warnings here with with peace. What's the big red flag that can affect that? Bitterness. Here's a person who says they know the Lord and yet they're not at peace with their brothers and sisters in the Lord. There's bitterness. They walk around in their heart and they're always against somebody. In their family, in the church. They're not right with people. They don't forgive. They're bitter. And, and as he points out here, that bitterness, bitterness never stays with them. It spreads. He says here, it defiles many. It's like a cancer. He's talking about people who profess to know the Lord, and yet they walk around with this bitterness and unforgiveness in their hearts. They're, they're, they're like a poison on everybody. Is there bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart and hatred towards others in your heart that you're quite satisfied to live with? You better wake up. Because you're in danger of falling short of the grace of God. Does that mean you lose your salvation? No. But again, your heart condition is showing that your profession is not genuine. You with me? You understand what I'm saying? Jesus told a story about that to Peter in Matthew 18. If you can't forgive the, the, the father's heart towards you, he told that story about the king and the servant. If you don't have the king's heart to forgive, then you don't belong to the king. Sometimes people in church spread strife and gossip and bitterness they're that way in their family you you look at their lives they leave a trail of heartache and everybody they're always he's saying you better wake up and then the holiness striving for holiness what's the warning there Here's the person like Esau, and I'm going to get into him more in a minute to illustrate this because it's kind of, it might be fuzzy how he's indicating that. But, but here's Esau, didn't care about holiness, couldn't see past the end of his nose. Maybe that's how you are. Here's Esau, he says here he was an immoral man and unholy. You read the Genesis account and you say, wait a minute, I don't find in the book of Genesis that it says Esau was immoral. God considered him immoral. He married Hittite women and he married an Ishmaelite. And so by marrying foreign women who didn't trust in Jehovah God, God viewed Esau as being an immoral man. And then he sold his birthright for a meal he was, he was unholy. He wasn't living for God's purposes, his own. He comes in from hunting one day and, and Jacob's got a pot of stew and he says, give me that stew, I'm about, I'm going to starve to death. You're not going to starve to death over missing one meal, come on. But over one meal, he was with, the birthright was his. He was firstborn. It, it would have been his the way man looks at things. He didn't care one bit. A single meal, he gave up what was his. What was his heritage in the Lord. He gave up over a single meal. What's the Bible saying? That demonstrates too that he was an unholy man. He did not care about the things of God. He was living only for the moment. There are professing Christians in church who say they know Jesus Christ I don't care one bit about striving for holiness. They're living for the moment. 
growing in the Lord, growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, that doesn't do anything for me. I'm not interested in that. He's saying Esau's the example of somebody who lived that way. And if that's you, you better wake up. You better wake up. When you look at your relationship to God and what's important to you and you look at your relationship to other people, if it's not what the Bible says it needs to be, you better wake up because you're in danger of falling short of the grace of God. A profession of faith in and of itself, if that's all you've got in your life, is not going to cut it in the day of judgment. You hear what he's saying? It's, it's a tough thing because like I say, you don't want to stir up doubt where you don't need to do that. But he's trying to shake some of them to the core. Because if some of them turn back and choose the easy way in life, he's saying, you weren't ever in to begin with. You're not saved by works. But where there is true salvation, you will work. You will persevere. You will strive for peace. You will strive for holiness. And anything short of that is a false profession of faith. Is any of this easy? No. No. Do Christians struggle with these same things? Yes. But the difference is a Christian in his mind and his heart, he's always trying to get all of this right. Going to those he's not right with. Going before God, dealing with sin, growing in holiness. Has he failed? Yes. But, he, but he's always pointing to that north star, if you will. He's looking up to Jesus. He's striving. The unbeliever... One who confesses Christ comes in and no life evidence to matter. He doesn't care what his life is like with other people. He doesn't care if he's grown in holiness or not. You see the difference? He's saying to some in the church, wake up. There needs to be evidence. And he uses some of the same arguments that John does in the letter of 1 John. Today, are you guilty of only living for the moment? Because you're only living for the moment, when when trials come, you just look for the easiest way out. You don't care about relationships gone sour. When you look at your life on a daily basis, your schedule... There's nothing there about seeking God and growing in holiness. You don't have time for any of that. If that's you, please, let me say to you as a pastor this morning, examine your heart. Are you really in the kingdom? Hopefully your life overall will give testimony that you are. 
Be encouraged by that. If you're out there getting those relationships right, if you're trying to grow in holiness, be encouraged. All that is evidence that God has done that work in your heart. And that's why you're trying to take care of those things. You might be going through a trial right now. And you need God's wisdom and God's strength. He'll give it to you. God cares more about you finishing your race than you do. He'll help you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your grace. Your life-changing grace. The grace that when it happens to us, we want to look at our lives and whatever is not right, we want to get it right. Lord, encourage folks in the church who are like that. Because the Bible is saying that's, that's a confidence they have. That's what life change looks like. Because the lost man doesn't care about relationships. The lost man doesn't care about seeking you. So they need to be encouraged. But the one here who doesn't care about those things, they need to be shaken. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will help that right balance to come through. My words are weak. I pray that your Holy Spirit will do what I can't. Work in the hearts of your people, I pray in Jesus' name.